Uh, welcome to Call and Shots. Uh, welcome back. Uh, I'm Seth Partnow. Uh, joined today, my old friend, uh, um, someone who uh, studies the NBA draft since so that now that is no longer a professional responsibility of mine. I don't have to until this point of the year, um, which for someone who doesn't terribly enjoy college basketball, I appreciate it. But uh, someone who is as deep in the weeds of this stuff as uh, anyone I know, uh, Sam Vicini. Sam, how are you doing today? Or tomorrow, I guess. Yeah. Since it's 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 uh, Thursday for you in Melbourne. Thursday, it's nine a.m. Uh, some might say I'm too deep in the weeds on this stuff. I mean, who knows? Really, uh, I feel I feel like I know less and less every year, while also simultaneously gaining a knowledge that uh, I feel more confident in knowing less and less. But also, like having this weird. Like you know, uh, confidence that you get after doing something for so long—it's a, it's a strange feeling. Like I'm sure that you kind of feel that way within the world of analytics that you've just been doing it for so long that like, you know, you know that there's so much uncertainty and still in what you're doing, but uh, it's it, it's a it's a beautiful art as much as it is a science. It's uh, you, I don't know anything, but the the next guy knows even less. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, I actually wanted to, so I was listening to your, your pod from yesterday with, with Matt Penny and yeah. I wanted uh, that kind of segues me into the start and we'll get into like what, like if there are implications you think for how the lottery itself shook out, but, um, and, and I know it was a flip, flipping comment on your part, but the, but the notion of getting too deep in, into the weeds. So from my perspective, just kind of, I've, I've studied some of the top guys a little bit and talked to some people and watched some film and stuff like that. But just hearing kind of the three top guys described, yep. it seems like we're overthinking it to think it should be anybody but Chet. I don't, like, I, don't, I don't know. That's just like, well, the interior presence and the mobility and the scoring and, the, and this and that. And, and then the Jabari Smith is, is tall and can shoot and... and Defend, uh, maybe switch, and then Bancaro is uh, worries the hell out of me. <laughs> I guess yeah, sort of, is, and that's again, this is a partially studied opinion, but just from a ten thousand foot view, that is that was, and I I haven't really thought that way the whole time because I've been you know I've had the same worry about Chet as everyone else from the first time you see him, like how is that going to work? He's so skinny, but having not thought about it for a couple months and then just drop in with that sort of precy of the players. That was my instant gut reaction. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So I think that what I would say is I am a little bit lower on Chet's switchability than maybe that take is. I, I have some concerns about NBA guards being able to really drive him backward and then step back and really create that level of separation. And Chet's, you know, so long. He's seven foot tall with a seven foot six wingspan. And he can cover that ground and, you know, recover in the way that he needs to, uh, to an extent. But I do think there's a chance that high level guards could catch him out in switches, like at a pretty real level. And if that's the case, I think that the holes start to pop up a little bit defensively more so than what you would hope. Uh, look, w what I would tell you is that I think Chet has the best anticipation and rotational awareness of any big prospect I've ever evaluated. And he's tough. He's physical. 
Like he he's willing to play in the manner that he needs to play, but is he going to be strong enough to actually anchor his position? And is he going to be quick enough to actually defend high level guards on an Island in the playoffs? I do think those like that combination of questions is pretty real in regard to how his game actually translates to the playoffs. Now, like we've seen Maxi Kleba figure it out because Maxi can really shoot in the offensive value that he's giving Dallas uh, in terms of being able to play five out is so valuable that the things he takes away on defense are, you know, you can live with them to some extent. And Maxi's a really good positional defender as well. I, I don't mean to take anything away from Maxi on that end. He's just slighter and doesn't anchor well. Uh, he is not like a great rebounder, right? So he is taking some things off the table on that end. So I say all of this to say that Chet can really shoot. He can really pass. I think he can handle. I don't love his handle in half-court settings. I think it's more open-court handle. Uh, and I love his anticipation defensively. I, I love his toughness. I, I love how hard he's going to work. I, I just worry about that intersection of can he actually defend on an island, on the perimeter, against the best guys, or even against like mid-tiered guys. Because if you go back and you watch tape of him playing Jalen Williams from Santa Clara this year, who I think is going to be a first-round pick, like a later first-round pick, Jalen caught him quite a few times. Uh, and then on top of that, is he going to be able to anchor against bigger centers? We're not even talking about you know Joel Embiid, Nikola Jokic, etc. Talking about Carl Towns and uh, even like Al Horford, you know, Jonas. Al Horford's a really good example. I think Al Horford would push him around pretty easily. Um, and, and all of this comes down to your the team that is selecting Chet is really going to have to have a strong plan in place, a strong uh, training staff, uh, a strong physical development uh, plan, essentially, to build up his frame. He'll do whatever you ask him to do in terms of that. Like, he is coachable. He's extremely professional. There's no... He will get the absolute most out of whatever he has, but it's just what it, you know. It, what does the frame allow? Is kind of the question. I think. Yeah, and and you know, I you know, a different caliber of prospect, but I'm the, some personal experience with that. Like, uh, Maker would work as hard as the day is long and do anything you ask of him, and be in the weight room and eat six thousand calories a day, and just never got bigger. Right. Like, and, and it was like through, through no, through no lack of anything that he was doing. It just, you know, he, though the, he, his motor ran hot. So he burned the calories off and, and, you know, maybe, maybe bulked up a little bit over, but never became, never was able to really have a base and sit down and, and as you say, anchor position. I mean, like, you know, I, I still have, have nightmares, uh, sitting under the basket as, as he was trying to box out DeMontis Sabonis when we were playing yeah. Indy and, and uh, you know, Indy, he was on Indy's second unit still and was just ragdolling him. Um, but yeah, so that, that is a concern. No, no doubt about it. Um, I, I do think though that, that you, you've the, the willingness to, to take contact and initiate it. And maybe it's different because it's positionally different, but yeah, um, especially defensively, it, you rarely see, for example, Kevin Durant get overpowered defensively. And it seems like it shows up more on the offensive end with him, to me at least. What what say you to that? 
just as, I mean, obviously we're we're making wild like we're bringing wild player comparisons in, but there's just so few players of his frame that I can you know think of <laughs> that you kind of yeah have no I, I think am I going to say Sean Bradley or am I going to say uh, Brendan Ingram or am I going to say Kevin Durant like that's the menu. No, I know, right? Like it, it's interesting. Like I think Kevin's center of gravity seems a little bit lower to me. Seems a little bit uh, like he's a more capable of dealing with that. I would also say Kevin's balance is unlike anything I've ever seen in my life. Like if you watch Kevin Durant play, I, I say this all the time. Like I used to go down to UCLA's gym and just watch Kevin Durant play pickup. Some of the stuff that he does with his feet, whenever you see him like up close and the way that he can just plant on one foot and rise up, it's unlike anything you will ever see from someone who is like six foot nine or taller. Let, and I know Kevin's listed at six foot nine, but like, let's be honest, he's taller than that. Um, like he, he can just plant in such a crazy way and can land in so many ways that are unlike it's alien in so many ways. He's, he's incredibly impressive. Uh, he, he's, he's incredibly impressive and Chet doesn't have that balance that Kevin does, uh, is the, you know, but I think that like, it's not, it's not crazy to like, bring yeah, right. up, um, you know, to bring up, cause you just have to search for guys that have this frame, right? You, you have to hunt for them in, in a lot of different ways. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that balance actually is a, is one of my questions about him offensively because mm-hmm. he's, he's slight and, you know, his ability to play through, to finish through contact at the pro level is going to be, it's, it's an open question to say the least. Yeah. He's more of a two footed jumper. Mm-hmm. And that and that seems to me like that. First of all, am, am I am I over indexing on on just you know the, the the somewhat limited sample I've watched say that? But if I'm right, that does seem like that's that is a problem for someone to you know who's going to finish with length and quickness to get to that length and quickness if he's got to take that sort of second gather step to really elevate. Well, and it's interesting because in the case of Chet, like how much of it is that he literally just has to load up off of two feet in order to like even have a chance physically. And like he was taught that in order to have a chance physically versus like, I don't think it's a lack of capability thing that he can't take off off of one foot. I, like, I think he has enough balance to do that in finish. Uh, it's just more that whenever he's in the dunker spot, right? Like, he's almost always going to load up off of two feet. If he's in pick and rolls, he's almost always going to load up off of two feet. One thing I will say, though, is like Chet posted a historic finishing year this year. <laughs> like he I, made 80%, I think, of his two uh, of his shots at the rim in half court settings, according to Synergy. So like it, it's it, it, like if you're considering him a shot creator, I think that you're questions are 100% valid and we should talk about them. And I think that um, if you're taking a guy at number one, you are hoping for something of a shot creator, even on a secondary level. Right. But you look at the way Chet finished in the dunker spot. You look at the way he was able to make it work in pick and rolls, not only with finishes above the rim with dunks, but with touch finishes with his left. And um, it's, he's, he like, we use the word unique too often to discuss NBA draft prospects or to discuss things in general, right? 
It's rare that you find something that is actually unique and that there's nothing else like it. There is really nothing else like Chet. Like he is his own person uh, as a player and even in terms of prospect profile. Sure. No, it's, it's, I mean, these, these and unique, like, as you know, by the way, though, yeah. like unique scares NBA executives. Yes. Uh, I mean, and, and, and I think in both directions and, and rightly yes. so. And rightly yeah, totally. so. Like, we've never seen this before. Is that good? I don't know. <laughs> um, no, it's, it, I mean, it's in, just hearing you describe that, like, it's not like he could have done much differently to answer these questions, but that just means these questions are going to be there until he demonstrates they shouldn't be questions anymore. And, you know, that's, that, it, it, that is, because there's no track record of anything like this to fall back on, it just, it just has to be out there as a risk factor. It has you have to consider it a risk factor because you just don't know. Yeah, no, totally. And like we're we're spending so much time, you know, harping on the questions that Chet has when in reality, like this is a seven footer who I think can really shoot, who can make high level passing reads. You can play him high low. You know, he makes high level processing decisions as a passer on the move. Um, you know, can grab and go on the break easily. And, and again, like I genuinely can't emphasize this enough. He is the best anticipation defender I've ever evaluated as uh, a big. So it is unbelievable. The reads he will make, he'll make like, he'll be on the weak side at the opposite elbow. He will fly down because he reads immediately that this thing is going to be a drive toward the rim. And he'll like from the cross elbow fly down and swat a shot without letting it go out of bounds and then like start a break. It's some of the things he does and just how quickly he reads basketball is it's staggering. It's unbelievable uh, to me to a very real extent. Um, I, I just have like, the, there are physical questions and they're worth acknowledging. No, it's, it's, we sort of brought back to where we started. Like you just describe all those things and there's a little bit of, well, what are we talking about here? But I don't. I actually did yeah. not plan on like spending so much time just on chat uh, off the top. It's just it, you, you kind of naturally led me there. Uh, let's 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 back it up a little bit. And first of all, um, you know uh, how good a class is seems to always be um, sort of um, proportional to the time until the draft hits. Um, <laughs> it, it seems like as we get closer, all the players have a way of getting better, but. Like yeah. so, but time adjusted, timing adjusted. Like where where would you say this this group is compared to some other others? I, I mean, I heard you talking about yesterday that like there was as many as four players from last year's draft who would have gone one overall this year. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I absolutely think that this is a weaker draft. I, I am I'm coming around on Jabari to where I think that we might be underrating his upside a little bit, just in regard to how it could really like fly up in terms of scalability to the playoffs. But you know, that's, that, that's probably a separate conversation, but at the top, I, I, I don't love this draft. I, I think that like LaMelo Ball was the number one guy on my board in 2020. I would take LaMelo over all of these guys. And 2020 was considered a weaker draft. Um, you know, obviously 2019 was Zion Williamson and John Morant. I would take all, I would take both those guys over everyone in this draft. 
Um, but yeah. where would you take R.J. Barrett? Uh, no, I'm kidding. I, I, I don't. We don't. No, I, I'm it's, not it's, letting it's, you talk about R.J. Barrett, Seth. <laughs> this is a terrible idea. <laughs> what could go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? Um, so, okay. So, but that said, um, um, one thing we all we are seem to always be finding is that they're okay. We tend to judge drafts on the top of the class, but they're still going to be good players, guys who make an make an impact at some level up and down yeah. the draft. Um, so we'll get to some of your, like your favorite kind of lower down guys, but what, what, anything really strike you as implications coming out of, uh, the, the lottery order? That's a great question. The thing that threw me off most was the Kings getting number four. I, I think that has like genuine, has a potential to genuinely impact not just their draft decision, but their, like what they're going to do long term in regard to their front office, because Monty McNair only has one year left on his contract, has potential to impact how they build their roster. Because the obvious player to take, assuming that Jaden Ivy does not go in the top three, is Jaden Ivy. The problem is you've taken a point guard in three straight draft classes, in addition to having De'Aaron Fox on your roster, if you take Jaden Ivy. So is that a really a great use of assets? And, you know, maybe this leads into a conversation of, uh, you know, you, you and I wanted to talk a little bit about fit and how fit matters uh, in an NBA draft cycle and an NBA draft class. I, I think that that's a case where I almost just take Jaden Ivey because I think he's like incredible and I would just rather have Jaden Ivey on my team. Um, but it, yeah. there are people already, you know, doing mock drafts that have said like, oh, maybe they'll take Keegan Murray, maybe they'll take Shaden Sharp because it's a better fit. I mean, the Sacramento Kings, why why do you totally like you're for the most part teams picking in that range, like I, I've never understood the, the obsession with fit. Your your team is bad. Why do you care how he fits with your bad team? You want your team to get better, so the bad players on your bad team, most of them aren't going to be there by the time you're ready to be good. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, that's that, that maybe that's being reductive, and yes, sure, you're building, and, and there are certainly instances where you don't want to, you know, cannibalize the value of players. Like, right. for you know, the, I think the classic recent example of, is like Philly going Embiid, Noel, Okafor back to back to back. But how much of what we, we think about that is Noel being hurt and Okafor being bad? If Noel had stayed, you know, had been able to stay on the floor, and Okafor had been even decent, you know, there were some op- there were probably some opportunities for Philly to do something out of that. If they, yeah, if, you, you know, know, it's 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 interesting. So I think that where fit comes into play with these younger guys, these younger teams and younger players is simply like how. How does he fit with our young star that we have on our roster for seven years? So, like, in the case of Houston, uh, how does anyone with Jalen Green potentially fit with Jalen Green? I, I think that they have to consider that. Like, whether or not we think Jalen Green is good enough, and I think he is. Like, I think he's he showed enough in the back half of this season to where I would absolutely consider him a building block uh, and, and, like, a potential All-NBA player if things go right in his development uh i mean the, the, i think you i think you have to consider okay i don't think Jaden ivy is a good fit with Jalen green 
because neither of them are high-level processors of the game and make high-level passing reads, and the offense could really stagnate. Um, whereas, like, the guy that I really like for Houston is actually Paulo Bancaro, because I think Paulo has a case as being, like, the best passer in the lottery, and he's six foot ten. Um, I think adding that ability to play a two-man game with Jalen Green, I think that adding that passing and playmaking ability could really open up some things for an offense that ostensibly on the perimeter over the next six or seven years will likely be led by Jalen Green. So th- that's where I think fit matters. It's only in the case where like you have a long-term building block in place already. I So I think this is where this is, I, I think... I'm not anti-fit. It's just my bar for when you should care is higher. Like, I don't like, yeah. okay, I, I have to be much more convinced Jalen Green is good. If you're telling me, how does he fit with Cade Cunningham? How does he fit with Scotty Barnes? How does he fit with yeah. John Morant? You know, Evan, like, Evan Mobley is, is, a, is a little different because that's a positional thing. Uh, much like Yeah, you know, and like the, the center position in yeah. general is difficult. Like yeah. the Cavs should be crossing off all centers at number 14. Like, but that, that, that to me is fit. You know what I mean? It's, it's the absence of fit and crossing off players. So I, I do think that like, even if they think Mark Williams is the sixth best player in this draft, they should not be taking Mark Williams because there's no pathway to get value back on Mark Williams. And you already have Jerry, uh, Darius Garland and, Jared Allen and Evan Mobley, like there's, why would you take a big there? Even, even in terms of the way that your roster building compounds upon one another, right? Like we're all shooting for upside here, not only in terms of specific players in the draft, but also in terms of your overall team goals, right? And just drafting a wing for the Cavs, be it a two guard, be it a four, be it, you know, someone who's positionally more toward one end of that spectrum or the other, I think is just drastically more valuable because if that guy hits, then you can play all of these guys together, which is hopefully going to raise all boats in terms of the value that you bring to the court. I think that's a, I think there's a very important and very kind of subtle there. Um, and that's like it's it's almost a matter of where, where you're whether you're focusing on the forest or the trees, um, you know. You oftentimes we talk about you know winning on the margins by maximizing every roster spot, and that's not quite right because you're trying to yeah. maximize your roster, and in most cases, that's those are the same things. But I think what you're talking about, you know, okay, for 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 a big to. Imp- meaningfully improve Cleveland, like the bar is is Jared Allen. Like the bar is not you know is is not a league average center. The bar is the guy who made an all star like like rightfully made the all star team this year. So you know you're aiming at a smaller target. Whereas off a wing, it's you have to be better than Isaac Okoro, right? And that's you know um, and that that's meaningful. At the same time, though, that's I think that's unusual. When we're talking yeah, about, yeah, the Cavs are an unusual example of this. Is fair, yeah. and here'd be another. Here's a question. Here's a fun question for you. So Charlotte, I think, is like the antithesis of this, right? Like Charlotte desperately needs a center, and you do tend to value centers a little bit more than 
for instance, like John Hollinger does. Like I, I love John, <laughs> and John just does never want to take a center if he doesn't have to, right? Um, yeah. I, I think that, that I mean that we'll get to this in in our in, I, another topic we wanted to, to to discuss was sort of how to view this these playoffs, it was like yeah. the draft through the lens of these playoffs, and I think that I think that the 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 evil that is the center position has been. Um, overstated, to put it mildly. But yeah, I, I, I think that's I think that's fair. But at the same time, if you're Charlotte, you should go get a center you know is good. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> then, I agree with you. Like you, you have a developmental center already in Kai Jones. You have, you know, some flexibility this summer. Go find a real center, big French guy. Yeah, go just, find the big French guy that can catch lobs yeah. from Lamelo Ball. I don't know. Just to just throw that out there. Um, so, but to get back to like you, we, this came up in the context of Jaden Ivy, who, um, it, it, this is, this is sort of, uh, <laughs> uh, indicates sort of where I was with this class was, you know, I didn't watch a lot of college this year. One of the first games I turned on was I randomly popped on half of a Purdue game. And th- after watching for three minutes, I, I, uh, I texted a friend of mine who's a scout in the league and is like, uh, Jaden Ivy's a dude, right? Just like, cause you know, we're always talking about a guy who, who yeah, popping. And this was a guy who was yeah. like, yeah, that's, that's what that looks like. That's that, that guy is what it looks like. So, um, someone who I, I maybe am irrationally kind of impressed with just because of first impressions. That said, if you think he is that guy is, is, is Davion Mitchell a reason not to, like that's well, like I don't think like if I if, let's put it this way if I don't think Jalen Green is a good enough reason not to I certainly don't think Davian Mitchell is a, is a good enough reason not to. Like this goes back to who was it that Cleveland didn't draft because they had Dion Waiters? Like, yeah, totally. what are, what are like what what are we doing? Like I, I think we see the flip side. You know, uh, the, 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 the the Cavs learn from this different you know regime, but do they draft Darius Garland if they're well? We got Colin Sexton, we can't do it again. And, you know, it turned out the way that, you know, the most likely good outcome, which is one was good, one was just okay. Like, that's a well above median average, like a median outcome for for that. So, but but here here's what I would push back on that a little bit. Yes, one was good. Yes, one was okay. What are you going to get back for Colin Sexton, though, this summer? Assuming that Colin leaves. Is he literally going to leave for nothing? Like he's a restricted free agent, and I would guess that they pick up the qualifying offer. But if you do end up with Colin Sexton, you know, returning literally zero value four years after he was picked, that that is essentially like taking, say, Isaac Coro at five. I mean it. It it happens. Yeah, <laughs> I don't. Like, I agree I, with you. Like yeah. Darius Darius Garland's an all star. Like you take the all if. If yeah. the, all of these things are equal and it takes you two swings to get an all-star, totally worth it, right? Yeah, like, definitely. you absolutely won that. But I'm just, like, kind of playing devil's advocate here yeah. and saying, like, you know, if Colin leaves for nothing, it's essentially like, even though Colin, I think, is an NBA player and, you know, will be a great sixth man for a lot of years, uh, you did essentially lose him for zero and it's the same value of drafting a bust that just doesn't play for you. I mean, it, it's, almost, it's not the worst outcome. Like the wor- like a worse outcome is like feeling attached to your previous selections. Like, yeah. oh, we got to we got to extend them, and then 
the guy you you sign a guy who's not good enough and and you know it clogs your it clogs your cap sheet for years and years so i mean they 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 got they got a look at the guys they drafted and one was you know one's an all-star and one had had some flashes but then got hurt and is you know probably the the fit between game and size is is insufficient to be a frontline player in today's nba i think is the fairest assessment of of sexton and like again I'm being worried about, well, what do we do if, if, you know, what do we do if this guy just can't play? Well, that's a risk of every draft pick. And also being worried about what if both of these guys can really play? Like, it's a great problem to have. So, yeah. so it, it, like, it almost, it, it seems a little overthinky to me. Like, I, I, you know, I always think draft for, for, for best chance and sign and trade for fit is always, is my philosophy. And I don't think I'm as extreme as some on that end, but I think I'm pretty far towards that end of the spectrum. No, I I totally agree with you in the case of this particularly. Like, I I like Davion Mitchell. I thought his close to the season was great. Like, he, everyone stopped paying attention to Sacramento, but he averaged like 16 points and eight assists in their last 20 games or something like that. He, he was really, really good to close the year after they traded Tyrese Halliburton. Uh, I would imagine that like part of what their thought process was, be this misguided or not, and I think it was misguided, like we have Davion Mitchell, we can afford to trade Tyrese Halliburton for Demonis Sabonis. Not great thought process in my opinion, but whatever, right? I, I'd imagine that that played a role. Um, the, the problem I have is they, they need to make a choice on De'Aaron Fox here, I think. I don't, the fit that I don't like, I'm actually like pretty okay with the Davion Mitchell and Jaden Ivey fit. I don't like the fit of De'Aaron Fox and Jaden Ivey. And again, like in your case, this this is where it comes back to, like I don't think De'Aaron Fox, frankly, is good enough to stop me from taking that whenever he only has, I think, three years left on his contract. Is that right? When it's a little less... When when the remaining is a bit is a little less onerous, then maybe you yeah. Like I I, I like like I think De'Aaron Fox is a good basketball player and he's you know certainly a top half of the league point guard like no question it's just I, I would rather take the swing that Jaden Ivey is maybe like you know if, if there's a seven percent chance that this guy is John Wall which is what everyone thought De'Aaron Fox had a chance to be. And you watch Jaden Ivey, and there are moments where you're like, oh, holy shit, I have not seen someone literally just run around a guy in half court like John Wall right. did. Right. Um, and then he's powerful, he's physical, he's athletic. Like, you know, as low as those odds are, I think I'd rather just take the shot that he's that good. This is So this is a semi-related question. I think it's a good one from Nate W. in the chat. Uh He's trying to come up with any top five-ish pick who struggled with his first team and went on to flourish elsewhere because of better fits. Yeah, I mean, the the answer there is, like, I know Chauncey Billups is an that's, example. That, that's, the, that's the first name that came to my mind. And I don't know if, like, I mean, is it better fit to, like, a coach who will actually, like, play rookies and let them fail? Right. Like, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> like I, I guess that's better fit, but that's not uh, – that's not – that's that's not a roster fit. Like I mean, I did make a joke during the, during the, the the lottery last night when they like they show they cut away to shots of like uh, Rick Carlisle and, and 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 Tibbs like smiling 
And it's like, like these guys are just pretending they're going to play. Whoever, yeah, right. whoever gets drafted here. Like, <laughs> what do they care? Like, where the team ends up in the lottery. So it's, you know, like, th- there is that. But if, but. Yeah. I, yeah, like, I, I, of, would, I would argue, like, maybe, like, the guys that have played better in their new locations in recent years, right? Like, since 2014, are probably Lonzo Ball and Andrew Wiggins. But neither of those guys are stars, right? You know, regardless of Andrew Wiggins starting the All-Star game this year. Like, I think both of those guys have reached new heights in different fits that better accentuate their gifts and put them into a more limited role that works better for them. But it's more about limiting things as opposed to accentuating things in their case. No, it's 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 interesting that both got better when they were on in small on better teams, and I don't know how that fits yep. in with like you know the the we think this guy's a he, the, the, this guy isn't going to be a star, but we are going to be good enough that he can be a role player. Like that's a that's a weird that's a weird kind of spot near the top of the draft. The, yeah, like so the the interesting one is James Harden. Right. Like, do we think that James Harden was just going to be James Harden regardless if he stayed in Oklahoma City? Well, that's a that's a multifaceted question. But no, I don't think I mean, obviously, he doesn't develop into, you know, the second half of his Houston career. Super ball dominant James Harden. Like that doesn't happen if he's playing with Durant and Westbrook. You know, LeBron is literally is the first player who's been able to dominate the ball on a Westbrook team. So, um so that that, but would he have be, been, you know, he was pretty good. He was like was pretty good already in Oklahoma City, yeah, and was instantly like great in Houston. So I think that, yeah, given you know, given time and and uh, you know a, a further expansion of his role in Oklahoma City, yeah, I think he becomes an All Star in Oklahoma City. Does he yeah, get I into think like I MVP? Probably not, but. Man, yeah. that's a pretty good team. <laughs> like, yeah. from, from the standpoint, from the standpoint of of you know, this I think this is that's almost a perfect example of me maximizing the player versus maximizing the team. Like, yeah, it pro- might not have been you know as good for James Harden, but it would have been pretty damn good for Oklahoma City if if they had kept that 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 group together. Now, you know, relitigating that because was it a choice between Ibaka and Harden and if that if that was the choice I think even in retrospect I think it's perfectly defensible to have gone with Ibaka but you know that's that's sort of the Hill Kawhi Leonard debate all over again isn't it yeah I mean it's it's almost a fit versus you know non-fit thing again right <laughs> you got what we're talking about here I mean, I mean, th- um, yeah that, throughout this conversation yeah, and, it's, and it's also um, it's also sort of in some cases it's the it's the it's the mystery box versus the burden hand, and it yeah. seems a different stage in their, you know, in in their life cycle. Um, you know, I, we just talked about Charlotte. Um, you know, you, if if you need a center, why don't you trade the draft pick to go get a center? Is is sort of is is, is is would be my advice there. But we're we've gone a little further afield than I meant to. Yeah. Um, who are like we? I, I feel like the top four guys, at least, um, have been talked a lot to death. I am. I don't have any sort of feel for for Keegan Murray. That that that's that that's a player who I who who I struggle to figure out what I should think about. So, what can you tell me? 
Yeah, Keegan's interesting. He's very polished. Uh, I think he's a little bit more athletic in the open court than what he gets credit for. Plays basically off of two feet, very square to the rim. And because of that, he always has very good shot prep, uh, which is why he, I think, took a big leap to 40%, or I think it was like 39.6 from three this year. I think he has some potential to shoot off of flare actions. I think he has some potential... Uh, to shoot off of relocations, uh, off of like offensive rebounds and things. He reminds me, frankly, and like he will knock down spot up shots. Like he reminds me a lot of Tobias Harris. Like when I watch him, it's six foot seven to six foot eight. It's not crazy length. Uses power a little bit more than finesse whenever he drives in the half court. Uh, can get to a mid range shot. Can bully his way to the basket occasionally using his shoulders and his stronger lower half. Um, you know, and obviously is just, he makes quick decisions is what I would say as well. Like in the way that Tobias does um, defensively, I don't really love him. I think he's a gambler, which is why you see the high block and steal rates. I don't think he is awesome in space. He's okay. I think like, could hold up in space again, similar to Tobias Harris. Uh, it, it's just that kind of skill set, really. And I think we're all still trying to navigate how valuable is Tobias Harris in a playoff series. Um, I think he can be pretty valuable. Like, I thought he actually did a pretty good job in their first series against Toronto. Like, he defended Pascal Siakam better than I think anyone could have expected through those first few games. And then Pascal like kind of figured some things out, but I, I don't know. I mean, it's it, well, where would you draft Tobias Harris in a draft that is like a slightly below average draft? To me, you know, uh, Tobias six, yeah, Tobias seven, Harris eight. has inherited. He's inherited the uh, the Brook Lopez. I can't see the player for his contract um, mantle. So I think yeah, a little bit Tobias of that. He's still valuable. Better. Yeah, he's he's a better player than he's given credit for, but like his he's but he's so his 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 contract is so over what his his production is to see past that, and that's that's somewhat justifiable. So like, but is Tobias Harris the third best player on a on a contender? The first two have got to be pretty damn good. Yeah. So that that's um, I one thing I I do worry about like just from a statistical standpoint when I was looking at Murray is for a guy who has the ball as much as he does. He averaged like one and a half assists a game. Yes. Now I know it's college and the other guys in the team are bad and maybe don't make shots for you, but like that's that if, if you know, for a guy who's, whose claim is like efficient, high usage score, the playmaking has got to come with that or else he's got to just be, you know, a 60 plus true guy who can just get buckets and you don't need him to do, you know, he's, he's got to be almost maybe not the same style, but same kind of statistical profile, at least as like Clay Thompson or something like that. And that's yeah. a big ask. Well, and what I'll tell you about Keegan too, is like that does show up in terms of the tape. It, it, he's not a great passer. I don't think that he sees the floor as intuitively as what you would hope for someone that you're taking at number seven or number eight. I do think that his passing, there are like flashes there and, you know, like so much of it is role-based. Like he had to do everything for this Iowa team this year. 
but it's hard. I think it is kind of tough. And, and but that's the thing is 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 doing everything you would think he would just fall into more assists than that. You know yeah, what I mean? definitely. Um, so, who are some some kind of maybe lesser known guys you think really have a chance to, you know, either surprise people like I wasn't much with this guy. Why is he being picked there? Or might slide, but the team that gets them, you know, it's gonna it, it's gonna be the classic situation of oh, how did you know, how did you let the, him get to the Warriors kind of, kind of situation? Um, either yeah, of those the things, guy that I would players that stick out to you. Yeah. The guy that I would venture that I am going to be higher on than most. And I'm probably going to have this guy as a top 20 guy on my board. Um, and he's, you know, I think people have him like in the forties or fifties right now is Jalen Williams out of Santa Clara. Uh, th- this might change after the way he measured today. But he's six foot six with a seven foot two wingspan. Uh, he is a legit shooter. Like he made forty percent of his threes this year. He shot, I think, like fifty forty, like eighty two or something. Um, really has interesting creativity off the bounce. He plays. He's like kind of a thicker guy and plays with a lower center of gravity, so he can actually move guys. But he also has shake. Like, typically these guys that have this body style, they aren't as they aren't as flexible through their hips, I think it maybe is, as Jalen is. And Jalen can, like, really make some crazy things happen with the ball in a very impressive way. Um, dropped Chet Holmgren in space a couple of times this year uh, in a very, uh, very impressive display of just ball handling. Like, I like him a little bit more than I like, for instance, Malachi Branham at Ohio State. And Jalen's not a bad defender. I think he's physically just exactly what NBA teams are looking for from the wing perspective. Uh, it's just hard for me to pass, like, legit. And he grew up as a six foot two guard when he committed to Santa Clara. So he has, like, legit point guard passing skills. Um, it's hard for me to pass up six foot six with a seven foot two wingspan and can dribble pass shoot, basically. Dribble pass shoot and it's physically robust. Yeah. Which is like I those mean, guys almost like the that's almost like the fourth thing. That's almost just I mean, we'll we'll get here. Uh, I, to finish up, I do want to talk about the the I, I wanna hear, you know, your other sleeper or two first, but I think we will finish up talking about kind of, you know, viewing the skill sets of the playoffs. And you know, the dribble pass shoot yeah. thing has been around for a while is Dribble pass shoot strong, like as yeah. almost the, the thing I would almost add, like add to that now. And and the player you're describing is like, yeah, like what if what if Jay Crowder could dribble? Is sort of it is kind of or or something like that, or 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 if 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 Pat Connaughton had an off the bounce game, or you know, yeah, like these are good playoff players who help teams, and then you add kind of that next level of of skill to them and. You got something. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm totally there. I, I really, really, really like him. Uh, on the other side of the strength column is Dale and Terry, uh, who is at Arizona. Six foot seven, seven foot wingspan. Uh, good defensive playmaker. He's one of those guys where, like, you know, he might free roam a little bit and his coach might get a little bit frustrated, but he's very disruptive. 
in regard to how he just like kind of makes things happen defensively with his length and with his twitch. Uh, the numbers, when you look at it, don't jump off the box score page. But he was all defense in the Pac-12 this year. I think he shot 50-36 in like 70, maybe. The shot looks funky. I think he has enough touch to make it work, but the shot looks funky. On top of that, he was at times Arizona's point guard this year. Uh, he averaged something like four assists per game. Uh, was very, very impressive getting his team in and out of his sets for someone who's this big and this long and you know this twitchy and has this much defensive upside. Basically, if he shoots, he's a very high-level role player in the NBA. Uh, very, very high-level role player that could potentially be a starter. Um, I, I, I really, really like the upside here. I think it's one of those situations where because he wasn't in a primary role playing at Arizona behind Ben Matherin and you know, with Azolas Tabellis and Christian Coloco that, you know, he, he's, he's in like the Tyrese Halliburton stage when he was in that first year at Iowa State and, you know, like stood in the corner a lot uh, yeah. and wasn't asked to do a crazy amount. Uh, although Tyrese Halliburton year at Iowa State, like just destroyed draft models. So just with, with you know, his, yeah, his, no, he's, you know, yeah, his playmaking and, yeah. Um, he's, he's not, he's not Tyrese. Tyrese is, is better that... than Dale and Terry. Sure. Yeah. When you say he's like seven, like that's actually historically kind of a, a, a line of demarcation. If a guy, like if a guy shoots 70 or better from the line in college, typically they have a chance to shoot it in the NBA. The, the number of guys who've been sub 70% shooters, uh, I, I forget off the top of my head, but there was a, like, um, I think Avery Bradley. Is is like the example, the, the counter example, and most other guys just knew when they're when they're yeah. down in like the in, in the sixties or, or or something like that. So it's, it's sort of the right on the line that gives you hope. Yeah, um, Dalen shot seventy four. Looking at it now from the foul line. Okay, so that's that's yeah. It's not it's not a plus, but it's not. I'm worried specifically about that. Yeah, um, from a stat standpoint. Anyone else that you you think is this? I've, I've heard, and maybe you can confirm this. This is not a um, uh, compared to next year, perhaps especially. This is not a wonderful overseas draft. No, it's not a great overseas draft. You have to like Usman Jeng a little bit to like really buy into the overseas part of it. Um, Dyson Daniels, I guess, like theoretically counts as overseas, but he was with the G League Ignite this year. I actually really like Dyson Daniels and think he should be a top 10 pick. Um, but beyond that, like Nikola Jovic is interesting. Um, six measure at six eleven. He's going to be going to confuse so many people. What Just did you the say? Name so? is going to confuse so many people. Oh, the yeah, name is yeah, going to yeah. confuse so many people. No, it will. Um, um, he, so he measured at six eleven today. He can shoot. He can really pass. He's like a point forward style guy. I really worry about him on defense. I, I have no idea how he's going to guard anyone. But, you know, Mega has a good track record of, you know, either maybe moving guys elsewhere before they come over or, you know, and, you know ending up, you know, having success in some regard. It, it's it, He's an interesting one that I think I'm probably a little bit lower on than most. And then you start to get into, like, Khalifa Jop and 
uh, you know, Ishmael Kamagate and uh, Gabriel Procida is probably the one I like most compared to where he's likely to be selected. Uh, but it's, you know, it's not a great international class. And, um, you know, it depends too, if you want to throw Leonard Miller in there, Leonard Miller is really interesting. Um, but it, there's no like high upside international can player. You, sure. Speaking of high upside, can you take 45 seconds to talk about next year from the international standpoint? And then we'll, we'll finish up with the playoff stuff. Um, yeah. Victor. I, I'm very interested to in your thoughts like, on I, I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on him just because he, this is, this is a, um, I'm like the highlights are absurd and it's, it's sort of a, a, a mythic player from like the Jackson past of, of, of he did what? So yeah, like thoughts, my immediate reaction on Victor was to be a bit skeptical early in his career. Uh, I, I do tend to be a bit skeptical. I was skeptical of Chet. I was skeptical of all of these skinny bigs, right? The thing with Victor is that his frame actually isn't bad. Like, he's going to put on weight. Like, he has broader shoulders. Like, he's he has already put on quite a bit of weight. Um, his ability to handle the ball that he's developed over the past, like, 12 to 18 months and, like, get to a step back is ridiculous, he is seven foot four with like a seven foot eight wingspan. Like he is, <laughs> he's kind of just unbelievable in a lot of ways. Um, he's going to shoot it. He's going to be an elite rim protector. He can kind of create his own shot. Now he's 18. He's playing Euro league. He's it's, it's a skill set on like, it, it's like Chet Holmgren without the concerns about his frame, basically. Yeah. Um, the, the, he's sort of been someone who's been on the radar for a bit and it seems like next year's draft, like next year's, the, 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 uh, the, the, the tanking desire for next year might be, uh, that might be a siren song for a team or two, I would think. They, they should. He's really good. He's really, really good. <laughs> Uh, like obviously, so just to break, like, um, what is the mo- most recent draft you don't think he would have gone number one? He should he should have gone number one overall, and as a prospect, like, do we go back to Luca, or is is there someone like Z- like the Zion, or you know, just to just to help calibrate like the level of prospect he is? Yeah, I think that we have kind of forgotten how good Zion Williamson was as a prospect. I probably would have taken Zion Williamson. Uh, I don't know. Maybe not. That's okay. hard. It's, it's, no, it's either Zion or Anthony like, Davis. Like it's one that, of the two. That's a discussion. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Like, like better prospect than Luca. Yeah. 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 I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm like Luca was one of the most no doubt prospects for me um, in, in a while. So maybe. Maybe I'm I, my bias is showing there. Um, regardless, speak, well, I guess Luca is a perfect segue since he's he's well, like in, so. So here's here's what I'd say about Luca. Like essentially, yeah. essentially three teams passed on Luca, right? So like there there was more there yeah. were more industry wide questions about Luca than there are about Victor. Yeah, I mean, I think some of that is is now with you know given the identities of the past. Um, four MVPs, 
um, and Luca's ascension as well. I think the level of doubt over overseas yeah. players is is probably significantly lower than it was in the, in, in in Luca's draft. Um, but I wanted to, uh, and I appreciate you you uh, doing this first thing in in the morning for yourself. Uh, but I want to get you out of here, you know, talking a little bit about how you view these playoffs and and if there's things that you think do apply to how teams should be drafting, if there are traps that it might raise, like over-indexing on the result of one series or something, or uh, just in general, like what do you think that the, the playoffs say about things? And how much should teams drafting the top of the lottery actually care about like what the playoffs right now show? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Like, go back five years and we were saying such drastically different things about the way that, like, the games operate right uh, within playoff settings, not drastically, but we were off by a little bit in terms of projecting out five years. Right. Um, I do think the game is going to continue to get more and more perimeter oriented. And with that being the case with like the Mavericks success this year, just playing five out. I do think we're going to see more of that, which is why I'm probably a little bit more inclined toward Jabari Smith. Uh, he is for me like a legitimate perimeter defender and a hyper elite, 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 elite shooter, like hard to overemphasize or over index that skill level. Um, it's, it's tricky though. Like it it is, it it is tricky not to over index because I, I do think that, had the Bucks won their seventh game against Boston, we're talking about a team that at time was essentially playing three bigs to close games with Giannis, Bobby Portis, and Brooke Lopez. And while in general my team building philosophy is I want as many switchable, you know, players that can minimize mismatches as possible, much like what Boston is doing, I also recognize that I do think there are other ways to, you know, make things work. One of them is having Giannis, but like uh, one of them I think is just having Giannis and then, you know, having a big that can both protect the room and space the floor. And I know the numbers with Brooke Lopez on the court in that series were not great, but I do think that he does provide them value uh, in certain moments and it was a guy coming back from injury. So like next year we might be saying something very different if Milwaukee wins the title again, because Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday are healthy and Brooke Lopez is there. I mean, Milwaukee largely, I mean, two of the, the, the last two champions, like really almost one with size and, and physicality. If you think yep. about it, like the Lakers yep. and Bucks, like that's that, you know, you know, some of it was the, like the Bucks definitely got a lot out of out of you know going, you know, more five out in 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 certain series. But they don't like they don't make the finals. They don't win the Eastern Conference Finals without Brooke Lopez mashing. You know, it's well, you... <laughs> it and and their their ability to offensive rebound was was pretty key at, at times. And some of that came from you know came from other spots on the floor. Like Pat Connaughton got a lot of got and PJ Tucker too got a lot of big offensive. But still. Like, yeah, it, 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 just, it, it, it seems we, how quickly we forget, almost. Yeah, to me, the cheat code is 
like skill, essentially retaining as much size right. as you can with skill, like being able to shoot with at least four guys, hopefully five out, uh, being able to retain as much size so that you can cut down angles defensively. That's hard. It's really, really hard to do that. There are not many guys that are, you know, seven foot tall can move their feet and can shoot, right? Like there's a reason that these guys are in such high demand. It's because they don't really exist, uh, you know, in a ubiquitous manner. Right. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it, it seems like there are certain immutable things. Like, you can never have too much shooting. You can never have too much athleticism. You can never have too many guys who can do both. And the guys who can do both tend to be, you know, 6'5", 6'6", 6'7", 6'8". So those guys are never going out of style. But the reason they're never going out of style is there aren't that many of them who can do that. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, just find the same good players we've been looking for for... 30 years and and that's still the that's still the path of success in the playoffs right and like ultimately the question (laughs) well like ultimately the question is where are you willing to make your trade-offs in the playoffs right like are you willing to sacrifice a bit of lateral quickness in order to get more shooting on the court in the case of the duncan robinson thing are you willing to sacrifice some shooting to get more quickness on the court are you willing to sacrifice size in order to get more, you know, shooting on the court in the case of Dallas, right? So it's all about what trade-offs you're willing to make. Where I think the trade-offs are most applicable to success are having guys who have mobility and strength defensively in addition to having guys that can shoot. Like to me, those are the those are the two most important things in today's NBA. And I would rather default toward those guys than default more toward, um, you know, the, the other side of staying big and default more toward, um, you know, let less mobile players, I guess. No, I, I think that makes sense. It's just it, the, the, the level of emphasis I think has, I, I think that the, the degree of that, the, the, for me, at least, the it seems like the strength which would, with which people are expressing that preference, and to the exclusion of all else. Um, yeah, yeah. No, I I agree. Um, anyway, I think it's, I, I think it's yeah, tricky. Sorry. I do. Yeah, well, it's. I mean, drafting is hard. I mean, first of all, you you know, <laughs> the, like figuring out which of these play. You know, as as we've talked about, you know, the, we were wrong in what we thought the game was was going to look like today, five years ago. Just like we were wrong about which players would be good five years. So, so now it's like, okay, which of these players will develop and what will the game look like and where do those two meet? It's really hard. I, got yeah. I, I think that's, that's, well, that's the overarching lesson of, of drafting. Well, the, the hard thing is that these players are such incomplete products, right? Like teams are drafting 18-year-olds. They're drafting 19-year-olds. They're drafting 20-year-olds. Like... Think about how different you were as a human being when you were 18, 19, 20 than where you were at 28, 29 and how much you just changed. And that's essentially, you know, from a personal standpoint, what NBA teams have to do with kids. And it's it's very, very difficult, I think, to really 
to know for sure. Like you, you have to, you have to do as much research into the Intel as possible and hope that you're making an informed decision. And sometimes you're going to make an informed decision. that's still just wrong at the end of the day. All of which is to say, uh, don't overthink it. Draft Chet Holmgren. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> Sam, I, I want to really thank you for, for, uh, for, uh, for making this work. I know it's been, you know, it's ramping up to the busy season for you. So adding one more uh, engagement on your dance card was, was a, a favor to call in, but I appreciate you taking the time and uh, um, we'll do it again sometime. And I still owe you, if, if you'll have me, I still owe you uh, a, uh, an appearance on uh, your show sometime. No, we'll make it happen, man. Thanks for having me on. I'm really glad that we got to do this. It was, it was fun because it made me think about things, not differently, but it, it, it fostered engaging creative questions that maybe I haven't, pressed myself on in a while. So this was fun for sure. Well, thanks a lot. And thanks for listening, folks. I am going to be back tomorrow with uh, Jared Dubin is going to join the program again. And we're um, going to try to make sense of the playoffs and fail miserably because they're weird. And now Boston's team has COVID and that throws another wrench in everything. So, yay. Anyway, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, Take care, everyone, and talk to you all again tomorrow.